you've learned about calendar systems, you've learned about routines, you've learned about tactile symbols, etc. But you are at the mercy of this other teacher to set them up. Whereas when they come here, they see all of those strategies and materials working and working well. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. When I was a new itinerant TVI in Washington State, I started off with an emergency certificate and was halfway through my master's program on visual impairments. I did have access to seasoned professionals, but not really in an organized way. I would get to see people once in a while and they'd give me some feedback, but I wasn't assigned a real go-to that I could reach out to at the drop of a hat. Turns out, in Texas, we do have a mentoring program, and Cyril Miller and Chrissy Cowan are here to tell us all about it. These are two people who are exceptional mentors themselves. We're jumping right in with Cyril, sharing how it all got started. We have a group of people who come together, stakeholders from around the state, who talk about personnel prep, and we've had that going for years and years and years. In 1997 and 1998, that group looked at what was needed in our professional prep options and in all our programs and proposed a mentor program, a collaborative program amongst the universities and TSBVI. We actually got a grant from TEA and it was this huge sum of money. It was used to create online training, which was wonderful, and a joint personnel prep program where the universities worked together and delivered content together that has never been replicated before or since, and a mentor center. Because when we moved to the online courses, that was brand new in our field, and we were, all of us, uh, I remember very well being very worried about how was that going to work and um, what happens, what do you lose when you, you're no longer in a classroom with a teacher? What you'll lose is that individual connection. And people will be able to, yes, to learn from a, a farther away, but they won't have the opportunity to see kids. They might be doing this from their homes at night and never having seen a blind child. So we created the mentor program. Um, so that was in 1998. And the grant was to, I think by the end of three years, we had to train and hire uh, 50 new O&M specialists and 100 new VI teachers in Texas. And again, the scope of it kind of takes my breath away even looking back that many years because that was incredibly ambitious at that time because the programs were in-person only and they were at Stephen F. Austin, they were in Lubbock, and maybe the Austin program had gone away. We were training something like 20 to 30 new teachers a year. And we looked at the data and said, that's not enough. So we're going to start this online with this distance access, and we're going to train 100 teachers, and we're going to, you know, oh my gosh, uh, we need some new options for them. And that's when the mentor program started. Ruth Ann Marsh initiated it. It was developed from a model that uh, a professor at what is now called Texas State, Texas used to be State. called Southwest Texas, yeah. So we based a lot of our mentor program design on research done at Texas State University on mentor programs and 
first-year mentor programs for special ed teachers, and then we adapted it for our population so that it's relevant for itinerants who are VI teachers and or comms. Now, I was in that first group in 1998, and I believe Jane Aaron was pulled in to do the training. She was. Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then we got a big bucket of materials to help us with our protégés, and now that was before the Internet. That was before the Internet. (laughs) That's right. We were doing online training, but there really wasn't an Internet system. Yeah, you got a huge, heavy box that we mailed Mm -hmm. across the state Mm -hmm. because people couldn't even lift that Mm -hmm. box. Mm -hmm. And then we all of that went into the REC, which is now online, the Resources for the Expanded Core Curriculum, which continues to this day Mm -hmm. and keeps getting updated. Um, I inherited this program from Ruth Ann Marsh, who was the first mentor coordinator. She ran the program for about 10 years, and now I've been in it for about 13 years. Currently, the program has a coordinator who is responsible for um, making matches between the new teachers and VI professionals. So when I, when I say new teachers, I also mean orientation and mobility specialist in addition to teachers of students with visual impairments. I work with the universities to match those people with an experienced mentor. So there are three different types of mentors in this program due to the size of Texas. Some of them work in the same district that their protege, and we use the word protege in, in Texas. Some of them, though, there'll be a new teacher hired in a small Texas city that doesn't have a teacher, a partner teacher, so I have uh, what we call statewide mentors, and those people will travel from farther distances. They tend to be individuals who have retired and are contracting back into the field, so they have a little bit more time to be able to travel those distances to get to those really isolated teachers. And then the third kind of mentor we have are individuals who work for the Education Service Center and they will mentor, some of them will mentor teachers in their regions. So those are the three different types. Currently we have 314 district mentors, about 15 Education Service Center mentors, and then about 12 statewide mentors. 278 of those are TVIs and 138 are comms. Keep in mind that some of those are dual, so the numbers aren't ever going to add up. But the comms, Certified Orientation and Mobility Specialist Mentor number has been growing, which is just really great. So individuals apply to be a mentor and they're required to fill out an application form. They go through an application process and they're recommended by their education service center representative, a coworker, and their supervisor. They're people who have been teaching for about at least four or five years and they have people speaking for them, recommending them. So each year I match about 15 new teachers or new VI professionals, and then I carry over about 50 from the previous year. So someone would be matched for approximately two to three years, depending on where they are in the certification process. The O&M specialists cannot have a caseload in Texas until they're fully certified. But the TVIs are working under an emergency permit. And so as long as they're under an emergency permit, they they are required to have a mentor. So that's why some of them are carried over the second year. They're not through with their program yet. They're not through with their certification process. So every year I 
track about a hundred, a little over a hundred mentor-protege teams. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's what I was thinking, too. The scale of it is really astounding. It it is. It's a big Mm -hmm. state. The mentor and protege teams, once they're matched, the mentor receives a contact log, and they're responsible for keeping track of uh, their interactions with the protege. I don't like to have the protege do any paperwork because they're taking coursework. They're in a fairly uh, frantic state those first two years of teaching, so I don't want to pile anything more on them. But the mentor keeps track of their interactions and they turn a log back into me as documentation of those interactions. That pretty much describes how it works. In addition to those matches, though, the protégés are invited to come to a mentor center. A mentor center is an observation opportunity here on the TSBVI campus as well as um, currently one classroom in in Austin Independent School District. Ideally, it would be great for them to observe another itinerant teacher, but the traffic in Austin has become so horrible that to get to one school takes them an hour, an hour observation, and then travel back here to home base is another hour. So it, it just was not working. So the mentor centers, there are three of them a year, the protégés can come to those. And in fact, it's a requirement for coursework when they're going through um, their university programs. So I work in concert with the university on those mentor centers. How many of the protégés that come to the mentor centers have never been to TSBVI, would you say? I'd say 98% of them. Wow. There's a huge competition to come to them. I can only allow a certain number because we can't flood the classrooms here with people observing. It's a fragile ecosystem, and you can't just pile people in a classroom or on a mobility lesson and have it be a comfortable situation. Any protégé can come to a total of two mentor centers. Typically they come when they first enroll into a program and then they come back when they've been hired. And it's a real different experience for Mm -hmm. them. They tell me that all the time. The first time they don't know what they're looking at, but they love it. (laughs) The second time they have specific goals in mind. They have their caseload in mind and they're looking for materials and Mm -hmm. strategies for that type of student. Mm -hmm. So it's a more realistic experience for them. The other thing is on, on an itinerant level, in any district, you'll have the limit of the number of kids you can see that, yeah. that are there. There's, you know, 10, 15 yeah. big districts might have more, but most of our teachers are in smaller districts. So they come here and they can see a wider range of students, perhaps, and a, a bigger number. Mm-hmm. Just, wow, they're all over the place. So they, there's this kind of exposure that happens that I think is a, a really positive. You know, as an itinerant teacher, you're at the mercy of a classroom teacher mm-hmm. who has your student. You've learned about calendar systems. You've learned about routines. Mm-hmm. You've learned about tactile symbols, etc. But you are at the mercy of this other teacher to set them up. Whereas when they come here, they see all of those strategies and materials working and working well. And so they they get ideas here of some things they could say when they go back home. Some of them end up 
asking us if they can bring that partner teacher here to observe. That happens every now and then. So I do see TSBVI as being a, a wonderful learning environment for all of those people. Mostly the comments I hear from those protégés are heartwarming things they've seen between the teachers and the students and ideas that they get to take home. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. We talk about the importance of relationship building with our students and Mm -hmm. how you have to have that foundation before you can expect them to learn or engage Mm -hmm. in your lesson plans. And so I have never thought about it before, but the benefit of seeing how relationships are built around here and the trust and just that alone, taking that back into any setting would be valuable. Well, a lot of training goes on here, specifically for behaviors. Mm -hmm. So they get to see those strategies. They don't know what the training has been, but every now and then they'll ask me, what kind of training do these teachers Mm -hmm. get to handle students who might be a challenge? Mm -hmm. I used to provide something we called mini sessions, where I would bring in a behavior specialist from TSBVI or or the occupational therapist to talk about sensory integration. However, really when they come here, the people that come to observe want to observe. They want to observe kids, Mm -hmm. and they don't want to sit in a lecture, even if it's a 50-minute lecture. So that went by the wayside. But also the librarian here, she sets up a table of reading strategies, assistive technology for the purpose of reading for students with low vision or students who are who are blind. And then she has a, a printout of a PowerPoint of a presentation she has done. They also go into the tactile symbols room and they take pictures of, you know, tactile symbols. They go to the publications department and they buy publications and they buy t-shirts. <laughs> so <laughs> it is a great opportunity though to see different techniques with different kinds of children mm-hmm. and also to be able to do that in a in a place where you can then talk about it with somebody else mm-hmm. and I think that is a mark when you see the people at the mentor center at lunchtime they are just talking mm-hmm. talking 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 mm-hmm. I saw this I saw this did you see that oh my goodness you know what was that about uh-huh. it again that's really hard to come by when you're the only itinerant person in your district so that joint conversation Uh I think is really good. Isn't it a requirement if you have an emergency cert that you have a mentor? That's right. So that's mandated. Did that happen with the beginning of this program or did that evolve into a requirement? It wasn't in place in 98. No, I don't think so. You know, the whole certification process, for the longest time they were teaching under what what Texas called a probationary permit. Then that changed to the emergency permit. So there are different regulations for both of those. Mm -hmm. But now, today, they're coming in with an emergency permit. They have to renew after a year and they can renew it, I believe, up to three years. 
teachers, but any teacher teaching under an emergency permit in Texas has to have a mentor who is trained and is of the discipline. So if you're a third grade teacher, you have a, a mentor who is familiar with the third grade mm -hmm. curriculum. That's why we set up a mentor training that was specific to uh, VI professionals. Initially, there hadn't been any mentorship programs for VI professionals that we could find anywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. There might have been one, we didn't know about it. It wasn't required by, because VI teachers and comms, you know, TEA and our State Board of Educator Certification, yeah, they had some rules about them, but they didn't they weren't really included in this whole emergency or probationary system. Since that time, we now are. We're, we're really part of that system, but initially we weren't. Uh, so it was a, I suppose it was voluntary initially from the TEA's point of view, but the universities have always required it for people taking their coursework. How do you think it has impacted protégés by them going through a mentor program? In the middle of the year, so every December, I check in with those uh, mentors and with the protégés, and I send them separate emails. I call it my how's it going email, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, who is your protégé? <laughs> Do you know uh, <laughs> who your protégé is? Um, about how many interactions have you had so far? Um, is your protégé responsive to you? Is there anything I need to know? Um, is there anything that's, that's not working? For the protégés, I, I say, who is your mentor? About how many interactions have you had with them this semester? How is your mentor helping you? Are they making a difference in your practice? So they answer those emails. The response is required. So I hound them if they don't, if they don't uh, reply. It dawned on me the other day, as I'm pulling in these replies, that I'm really very lucky in this position. It's like every now and then you read bad news all the time, all the mm -hmm. time. Well, this is all good news. Mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate to see these comments because they're so heartwarming. Here are some of the comments. She goes out of her way to assist me and make me feel confident and comfortable in this fairly new field of work. She has a great amount of knowledge and does everything she can to ensure that I succeed in providing the best service instruction for my students. So that's one. When I have a question or problem, she not only helps me solve it, but provides source material to support her answers so I can understand the background information and know where to look for information the next time a similar issue arises. Isn't that that's mm -hmm. just amazing yeah. to yeah. me? I have a lot of them, mm -hmm. um, but these are representative of how the mentor makes a difference to the protege. I know my first year as mentor coordinator, I did not do this middle-of-the-year check, um, so I started doing this because there was one situation at the end of the year in April when I found out that the mentor and protege had not been in communication, and that protege had three totally blind students who were learning Braille, and she just felt abandoned, and so she quit. She left the, the profession at the end of the year. I thought, I can't. I really can't let that happen again. If there's something happening between the two, I need to I need to know. So if I get a response in the middle of the year that is questionable, the protege might say, I've had two interactions with my mentor. Or for the question that I ask, is your mentor helping with your practice? If I get 
mm, not so much. Then I will call. I bump that out of an email correspondence and I'll call the protege and I'll ask what's going on and I'll call the mentor. Sometimes, and it's not an uncommon scenario, the mentors themselves are at a stage in their career, in their life, where they have kids that are growing up, they're teenagers, um, they have parents who are aging, so they're they're the sandwich, you know, situation where they have a lot going on in their lives and they might have a, a heavy caseload. I don't want there to be any shame mm-hmm. involved, but the bottom line is the protege needs to have support. So sometimes I'll set up a different support system. How do you hold the mentors accountable? They fill in a contact log. There's two different types of record-keeping systems they can use. One is called an activities checklist, which was designed by the PPAG group. It is more in alignment with the expanded core curriculum. Back then, we didn't have the ECC, but it it very closely mimics that. So there are required activities, and then there are optional activities on the activities checklist. Or they can choose to do a simpler contact log. And the contact log was a result of, and I was a mentor for years and years, we were given a blank sheet or paper with lines Mm -hmm. that had dates and what kinds of topics you discussed with your protege. I'm sorry to admit, that was due April 15th. So on April 14th, (laughs) (laughs) I would pull out my sheet and I would write down, I would Think back during the year and write down everything I could remember that I had discussed with my my protege. Ruth Ann saved everything. I had years of those on paper. I combed through those and gleaned for the O&M and for the VI, so two separate contact logs. I gleaned the most common topics. So now I have two pages, Mm -hmm. (laughs) single-spaced, of a checklist of those topics that are organized by category. So, for example, services for infants, you know, the IFSP process, or um, IEP paperwork, or uh, students with charge syndrome, or whatever, um, the expanded core curriculum. And so every time they discuss that with a protege, they're to just simply make a hash mark. If they want ACVREP credit, or they want CEU credit, then they keep a log of their the time they spent. And they, they use that. I don't do anything with that. At the end of the year, I look at those. I see how many interactions there have been and the quality of those interactions. And if it's been very, very minimal, this is rare. If it's been very, very, very minimal, I call and I say, hmm, you know, let's let's talk about this. <laughs> That's why, the, again, that December check is so important. We don't get all the way to April anymore because we've done the December check. I'm guessing the log and the check-in and things like that are written into a contract because I know they all sign contracts at the start mm-hmm. of the year and then they do get a small stipend at the end of the year mm-hmm. if they complete all that mm-hmm. stuff. So mm-hmm. that's all written into the contract. It, yes, they all sign a contract at the beginning of the year, and the contract uh, lays out what their responsibilities are. If they don't follow through, then they don't get paid. But again, that's a telephone call mm-hmm. at the end of the year, 
I have to say that so rarely happens. It's just a tighter system now. What percentage of your mentors keep doing it year after year? I have not collected data on that. Do you have a lot of repeaters, though? Oh, yes, I have a ton of repeaters. Yeah. Interestingly, as people retire, I want them to still mentor. They make great mentors, and they'll ask me. I just had an email from a teacher in El Paso last week who is retiring, but she wants to continue to mentor, and is that a possibility? And I said, absolutely. In many, many situations, the new teacher is taking over the caseload yeah. or some of the students that the mentor had. And so it's their way of assuring that those students that they, they really care about are getting quality services by training the new teacher. You know uh, what I think is telling when we do the training of new mentors? Mm -hmm. We always ask, how many of you had a mentor? And of course, you know, in the beginning, nobody had had a mentor. But now it's it's pretty much 100%. And then mm -hmm. I think you might ask them this on their coming into the mentor training, but it seems like you have a, a PowerPoint going with their answers oh, about yeah. what it was like to have a mentor. Uh-huh and why they want to be a mentor. Uh -huh. And the answers that, you know, talk about heartwarming, they're, they're all about, I had a mentor and it made such a huge difference to me, or I had a mentor who is now my best friend and I want to give back. And there's, there's such a strong feeling of give back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in this mentor program. It's a lot of work, or it can be, but it's not seen as, as an obligation. It's really seen as, for what I was given, mm -hmm. let me now give that to somebody else. The mentor program is so robust that we had to make it two episodes. Stay tuned about this time next month for part two, which will include more information about how to develop your own program if you're listening from another state, and also some firsthand perspectives from participants. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.